AML Hub Podcasts, brought to you by Scientific Education Support. Hello and welcome to the AML Hub Podcast. I'm Alexander Mora and today I'm joined by Dr. Michael Osgar and Dr. Kana Sagin of the Ohio State University, Columbus, US, and Dr. Abby Singh of the Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center, Buffalo, US. So gentlemen, we are here to discuss how the type of prior treatment affects the risk of therapy related myeloid neoplasms. It's interesting to see at ASCO, there have been a couple of abstracts submitted on that topic, and all three of you are working on the late effects of cancer treatment. I think one of the problems that physicians have with secondary myeloid neoplasms is that they are so difficult to treat. Can you comment on why that is the case? What is your take on it, Dr. Singh? So it's quite difficult to treat therapy-related myeloid neoplasms because by definition, uh, individuals who have uh, these malignancies or cancers, they're exposed to cytotoxic, genotoxic chemotherapy, and they've also had a prior malignancy. So <clears throat> what happens is that most of these patients, they fall into this medically unfit category. And we know that they have had prior exposure to DNA damaging agents. Uh, so they have very complex karyotype, very complex disease. And to treat this disease, you actually need intensive chemotherapy regimens and hopefully a transplant once they're in remission. But due to their medical unfitness, it becomes a challenge to treat these patients. So that's why I'd say it becomes really challenging to treat patients with TMM. Thank you, Dr. Singh. That's great. Um, anything to add from you, uh, Dr. Oscar? or? Um... Dr. Sajin? Yeah, so uh, as Dr. Singh mentioned, uh, th those patients who have already received a, a lot of genotoxic therapies for their cancers before, and given the fact that they uh, would uh, be older than the de novo AML cohort that we would normally see, uh, would potentially preclude them from um, most of the intensive chemotherapies or even the allogenic stem cell transplant that we can offer. So that's the clinical challenge, uh, but it's also biologically uh, more complex and challenging as well. Uh, we know that most of the cytotoxic therapies that we use don't work very well with uh, patients who have complex karyotype or uh, p53 mutation in particular so uh, the treatments that we have for them are probably not uh, as effective because of these uh, biologically complex nature of their disease thank you fantastic and just just to kind of piggyback off of that I think ultimately these patients uh, who have received previous genotoxic agents you know they're they're older as dr. Sagan alluded to potentially more deconditioned, they've been in and out of hospitals, they've had these infections, multi-drug resistant organisms, they're just, they have unfortunately a steeper hill to climb, so to speak, both clinically as well as from a molecular standpoint, so it makes these therapies a little bit more difficult to select. Thank you very much. That's great. Um, let's move on to the, the next question. Um, would you agree that those secondary myeloid neoplasms evolve from clonal hematopoiesis? Is that, um, I think it's still a hypothesis, but probably currently the most likely hypothesis. Would you like to comment on that? Should I go first? Can I? Sure. Yeah, please. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, so we, we, we have some data, some evidence that uh, people who uh, develop therapy-related myeloid neoplasms actually uh, had uh, clones of clonal hematopoiesis, as uh, you mentioned, uh, at the time, even uh, before they received the initial genotoxic therapy for their 
breast cancer or lung cancer, whatever the cancer they had, uh, because those large studies uh, that um, sequence blood samples stored at the time of their initial myeloid, uh, non-myeloid cancer solid tumor uh, showed that they had the p53 clonal hematopoiesis already existing. So uh, when we see the same mutation, the clonal hematopoiesis mutations uh, in the AML that they developed a couple of years later, uh, it's natural to think that uh, these patients who already had uh, those clones in their uh, bone marrow probably underwent uh, a selection process as they received the genotoxic therapy. Those clonal hematopoiesis clones probably had a survival advantage uh, and uh, potentially expanded and uh, later on converted into a secondary myeloid neoplasm. So CHIP is definitely a big hypothesis, especially for the P53 mutated therapy-related AML. Uh, it's all, Another hypothesis would obviously be that the chemotherapy, anthracyclines, or uh, other types of genotoxic agents that we give to treat solid tumors can create de novo mutations. Uh, someone who did not have CHIP as they uh, were receiving their uh, cancer treatment may develop CHIP uh, after those treatments, uh, and they may have completely normal blood counts and uh, can, can be hematologically healthy for a prolonged duration, but at some point with the additional mutations, they can develop a myeloid neoplasm. So I think both hypotheses exist out there and uh, we are collecting more and more data and that's really an exciting time to investigate both of these. Fantastic, thank you. Michael, any, anything you would like to add? Yeah, and, and kind of adding based on that, you not only have those kind of progenitor chip mutations, maybe those de novo mutations, but then also if you have those chip mutations, as time goes, potentially you acquire new ones or additional ones as well. So not only do you have your baseline ones, but as you're exposed to more genotoxic agents, your kind of your marrow clonal milieu may change and you you can acquire additional mutations and that's why it makes these, these patients even more difficult to treat. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say that, yeah, I agree uh, with uh, what Dr. Sagan and Dr. Ozga mentioned, and definitely clonal hematopoiesis has some part to play in the natural progression of the disease from CHIP to CCUS to MDS to AML, but I would, I would be, uh, there's still a lot is evolving and we still need to learn a lot about the process, so surely not obligatory, but definitely there's a huge signal there that this needs to be studied further. Uh, and hopefully with the groups uh, around the nation doing so much work in clonal hematopoiesis, we'll have some answers. So uh, there are, there's like good uh, case control studies that have been done looking at uh, prior clonal mutations and then onset of uh, therapy-related myeloid uh, neoplasms. And in those uh, scenarios, we've seen that about 30% of the patients have had a prior mutation. However, there is a good, good huge group that do not have these mutations. So maybe uh, the direct mutagenic effects of the cytotoxic chemotherapies induces new mutations that Dr. Ozga and Dr. Sagan pointed out to. So definitely a lot to learn, a lot more to study, and I'm uh, happy to be part of this process. Okay, and what are those secondary mutations or even primary, I mean, we talked about P53, but what are the other driving mutations that um, you know, make sure that um, drive the clonal hematopoiesis into transformation and, and leukemia. Michael, would you want to start? Yeah, 
Yeah, definitely. You know, so we talked uh, we talked about the TP53 mutations. Yeah. In our study, particularly, Dr. Sagan and I, we took a look at a few mutations that kind of stood out to us when it came to different environmental factors, set of toxic agents. We had our ASXL1 um, was a very common mutation that we saw that was related to kind of radiothera- uh, you know, radiation and radiotherapy patients. Um, we saw MPM1 as well that stood out to us. Um, SRSF2 also stood out. So kind of those mutations for therapy-related AML um, definitely kind of were interesting for us to look at. Yeah, so the traditional chip mutations or the most common ones, uh, the so-called DTA, DNMT3A, TED2, and ASXL1. So uh, th- th- those are very particularly common in the uh, aging population, in elderly uh, people. Um, and as we know, if uh, when we look at the population about age 80, 90, almost 20, 30 percent of completely healthy people have those mutations. But um, in addition to those, P53 uh, or IDH or CHAC2 can uh, also be seen uh, with clonal hematopoiesis, and they probably have a higher risk uh, of uh, transforming into uh, full-blown myeloid malignancy, MDS or AML. So uh, that's, uh, that's there. But obviously, the other question is: we study CHIP extensively in uh, the uh, healthy population and determined all these mutations, but the the chip that arises after the genotoxic therapy uh, may have a different spectrum. Uh, as Dr. Asta mentioned, we uh, detected the P53, ASXL1, we detected some splicing factor mutations, so uh, it, the, the uh, frequencies of those mutations might be slightly different in that case. Dr. Singh, any, anything you would like to add? Yeah, so I'd agree with all of that and uh, also some interesting observations that uh, were present in Dr. Oska and Dr. Sagan's work was that they found an interesting association of ASXL1 with smoking. The group here at Sloan Kettering has found a similar association with ASXL1 and smoking. And also our un- unpublished data suggests that uh, there's uh, associations between ASXL1 and uh, vascular disease. So there's something intriguing there happening. And uh, in terms of the mutations, yes, we see a individuals older than 70 years of age, 10% of these harbor chip mutations. And these go on increasing in frequency as we age, uh, most commonly being in the DTA mutations, DNMT3, TAT2S, XL1. Okay, thank you very much. And um, Dr. Otsuka and uh, Dr. Tejan, you in your work described that specific genotoxic therapies generate specific mutations. Can you elude on that a little bit more? Yeah, definitely. Um, Thank you for bringing that up. I think, you know, basically how we approached our study was taking a look at those patients who had received various genotoxic agents, whether it was alkylating agents, anthracyclines, radiotherapy, et cetera, taxanes, et cetera. We took a look at their molecular footprint and tried to uh, see if there's any association with those. So we saw in therapy-related AML, those patients with radiotherapy had a higher frequency of ASXL1, MPM1, and SRSF2. Um, and then conversely, U2AF1 uh, was seen lower in patients who had received radiation versus those who did not. Um, specifically looking at cytotoxic agents, uh, patients had a higher incidence of TP53 mutations, which is, I think, what we kind of uh, thought. And then we also saw that in platinum agents and taxanes, uh, that was um, consistent as well. And then conversely, in patients who received vinca alkaloids, the incidence of PET2 mutations 
um, was higher uh, and alkylating agents was also associated with a lower incidence in DNMT3A mutation. So again, taking a look at previous agents and their molecular relationship was kind of the, the central aim uh, for our study. Texas agent, anything you would like to add? Sure. So uh, our study is mostly looking uh, at a very large cohort retrospectively, trying to describe some associations uh, between the prior therapies, uh, both radiation and various uh, different chemotherapy agents, as Dr. Alaska mentioned, uh, and what kind of molecular profiles we got at the end. So. Uh, the, the goal here ultimately is, uh, as we screen more and more patients for CHIP, uh, particularly the patients who have solid tumors and uh, are getting ready to undergo some sort of genotoxic therapy for their solid tumor, uh, it might be of value down the road if these results uh, are further validated uh, to see what particular genotoxic agent uh, increases your risk of uh, AML uh, with that particular mutation. For instance, if we know that the radiation increases the risk of ASXL1 mutated uh, myeloid neoplasm, then it might uh, be important for the treatment selection uh, for uh, the malignancy. So these are some of the far-reaching goals. Uh, and one of the other things is associations like this have been looked at uh, uh, have been looked from a chip standpoint, uh, like the types of treatments people received and then what kind of clonal hematopoiesis uh, they obtained. However, we also know that most patients with chip never develop myeloid cancer. So looking at this in a cohort who actually have a myeloid cancer uh, may also help us interpret those chips uh, studies uh, a little bit better and see what might be more clinically relevant uh, for, the, for these folks. Thank you very much. And now um, I think it's you, Dr. Singh, are presenting data that um, those novel agents actually reduce the risk of those secondary myeloid neoplasms. Can you elude on that a little bit? Because we we have um, compounds like lenalidomide who were known to induce secondary cancers. Are patients now more protected from those secondary neoplasms when they treated with novel compounds, novel treatments? So uh, our study was at a large population level and it wasn't, uh, there was no molecular information that we had available. So what we wanted to see is that there are certain cancer types where alkylating agents or 2 isomerase 2 inhibitors were used previously in the last century, but at the turn of the new century, there, in, those treatment, in the treatment of those cancers, modern uh, cancer therapies such as immunotherapeutic approaches, targeted therapies, uh, immunomodulatory MITRE drugs have been started using. So we looked at four cancers. Uh, one of them was non-small cell lung cancer, renal cell carcinoma, um, metastatic melanoma, mal malignant melanoma, and then uh, multiple myeloma. So non-small cell lung cancer, uh, in about 2003 to 2004, there were targeted agents like uh, EGFR TKIs, then later ELK TKIs came in, prezotinib, lorlatinib, brigatinib, and then now uh, immunotherapies play a major role in the treatment of non-small cell lung cancer. Renal cell carcinoma has also always been considered a chemo-resistant tumor, but in the beginning of 2000s, the chemotherapy use was still prevalent, and after that, 
revolution one took place with VEGF, TKI, sunitinib, serafinib, and then now immunotherapy is the mainstay for treatment for renal cell carcinoma. Similar for uh, melanoma, uh, there's vemurafenib, which is a BRAF, TKI, and then slurry of uh, immunotherapeutic agents that are used in renal cell carcinoma. Multiple myeloma, in the last century, we were using a lot of melphalan and alkylator, and then other alkylating agents as well. Since the turn of the new century, we use image, lenalidomide, pomalidomide, and then proteasome inhibitors as well. So the, we had a question in mind that are the risks decreasing or changing with the use of these therapies? And we interested several interesting trends. Uh, uh, so in all these cancers, the risk of TML is going down. Uh, TMN is going down, but the risk is primarily driven by TML alone. Um, and this coincides with the uh, adoption of newer therapies. And the last part of our study, the follow-up wasn't long enough uh, because our study had patients till 2016. So if you look about it, uh, patients who were diagnosed with 2013, they didn't have a full follow-up. We had data till 2017. So we need more follow-up to have give patients time to develop DMDS, TML. Uh, but overall, there's definite signal that these risks are, that the trend is uh, downtrending. And also in melanoma and renal cell carcinoma, the risk was actually lower than general population in the last period in the era of immunotherapies. So one wonders is that revving up your immune system or increasing the immune sur surveillance to kind of attack these clones and that's why we're seeing these trends. But this is all hypothesis generating, and our group is actually working at the molecular level as well to see if that actually holds true. Very interesting. Thank you very much. Dr. Oscar, Oscar would you like to add anything? I think, I mean, that was, that's wonderful, Dr. Singh. Um, that's really interesting, um, especially in kind of not only the myeloid, but the lymphoid malignancies as well. Kind of some crossover there is very interesting. Um, I think to kind of go off, Dr. Sagan was saying, Ultimately, our, our job as researchers is try to improve clinical outcomes. That's, that's our goal. That's our hope, to make you know, patients' outcomes better. And if we can somehow, let's say you have an individual who's you know, seven years old, is a smoker, and has lung cancer, maybe needs radiation, we looked at the ASXL1, and potentially that mutation is there. It's been there from the beginning, potentially. And we know that they're a longstanding smoker, they have lung cancer, and potentially radiation is, is on the table. And now we can start thinking about, is that really the best option for us? And that's, that's something that's our job to continue looking at. We don't have enough data just yet. We need external validation. But uh, that's the ultimate goal, is to try to make our clinical outcomes better. Um, so that's why, that's why we're doing this. That's why it's exciting. Thank you. Fantastic. Dr. Sajin. Yeah, I think, I think that's really an exciting and rapidly evolving field, especially now that a lot of big institutions are developing chip clinics uh, as people are getting ready to undergo treatments for their various solid tumors. They uh, may get these screenings done, and uh, even though they have a completely normal CVC, one may find a mutation, uh, and then uh, that, uh, and then how, what are we going to do with that? So. The studies that uh, all of us are doing now are associative and we are trying to build some models to predict the disease risk better. But ultimately, um, one of the exciting fields will be, we, we are developing targeted therapies for most of these mutations. So uh, if a patient, for instance, has a chip mutated uh, chip, 
and if they are going to undergo uh, a genotoxic therapy, uh, would it be useful to add a JAK inhibitor uh, to prevent uh, the development of a myeloid neoplasm, which will likely be fatal in a couple of years? So that's an aspirational goal, uh, but uh, these are the type, kinds of questions that uh, will be coming up and uh, hopefully will be answered better as we uh, collect more data. Fantastic. Thank you so much. It has been uh, truly inspiring to, to talk to you. Thank you again. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you, guys. Bye. AML Hub Podcasts, brought to you by Scientific Education Support.